Welcome back, everybody, to the Peds Ortho Podcast. This is uh, your host for this month, Craig Lauer, coming from Vanderbilt University. I am so happy to be uh, here tonight with you all, and uh, we have a special guest, uh, Noel Larson from Mayo Clinic, is on the line with us today. Hi, Noel. Good evening. How are you? We are great. Um, of course, we all know Noel from her involvement in POSN. If you're listening to this podcast, you have certainly heard her name before. Um, a lot of work on the research council as well as various other committees. I think she's been very innovative in our field within, for the last decade plus uh, with research on a variety of topics. I saw something quoted recently about 180 articles and growing. So definitely a tour de force with regards to research. And we're gonna touch on a few of those articles tonight. As always, I have my co-host joining me tonight. And so boys, you wanna introduce yourselves? Hey everyone, this is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And this is Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. And um, Julia is unfortunately not with us tonight, um, but it's actually uh, rather good news, I think. And we have her permission to share, but the Peds Ortho podcast family has grown by one member in the last month. So uh, she welcomed uh, her uh, first son, Stephen, uh, this last month. And uh, her and her husband are um, back at home with him uh, at this time. So uh, we are congratula uh, congratulating her and very happy she's spending that time with him instead of us, although we do miss you, Julia. Um, Congrats, so, Julia. Awesome. <laughs> and we were all, before we got on the air, just reflecting about our kids' ages and uh, navigating uh, those trials and tribulations along with things like evening podcast calls. So um, good luck with that in the future as well, Julia. So we've got a lot to cover. So, Noel, we're just going to get right into it if that works for you. Sounds great. So, as I mentioned, uh, Noelle Larson is Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic. Um, she's someone who I'd always hoped we'd entice to join, and I kind of snuck up on her this last week at the ICHEOS meeting. I think she was in this wanting to talk about research mood, and I just sprung it on her, and she couldn't say no. Um, and so <laughs> uh, at that time, I just had identified one article in Spine Deformity Journal, which we're going to talk about. Uh, and I was kind of like, oh, if I can talk to Noelle, that'd be great. And since that time, I've seen you've had two other articles published in JBJS just this month and another recent article. So we're going to touch on all of them. So things have kind of expanded uh, with regards to our plan. Um, but before we do that, just a little bit about you. Um, if anyone wants the full bio of uh, A. Noel Larson, please tune into uh, Nick Fletcher's uh, PD Pod uh, <laughs> podcast. I think that was uh, from a couple of years ago, he interviewed you. Um, but I know that you grew up in Seattle and you've been uh, associated with Mayo, uh, both for your residency and now working there. And um, you were um, one of the uh, proud products of the TSRH fellowship. Um, and I always have found you at meetings to be very gracious, but well-informed and welcoming and approachable and um, really do a lot of things great in orthopedics uh, and peds orthopedics. And one of the uh, real real ambassadors for our field. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions uh, about your practice. Maybe our listeners don't know as much about you. So uh, maybe just basics. What do you do now? Are you still general orthopedist? Do you focus more on spine? What's that breakdown? Yeah, great question. I came out of fellowship and Al Crawford had always said, don't subspecialize for five years. Now that was back, you know, over 10 years ago. So I think the world has changed and more and more people are subspecializing. 
Um, I'm in a group of five, so we all do general peds trauma call. Um, and I do a little bit of everything, but really it's boiled down to at least 50, 60% of my practice is spine. So I do a lot of spine. I do early onset spine. I do uh, non-fusion motion sparing spine, and then I do a lot of fusions. So, um, and I have really liked the patient population. I really enjoy um, getting to know the families many times before the surgery and then following the children post-operatively. Um, spine is a big deal for families. It's, it's a big procedure and I've, I've enjoyed, uh, the privilege of working with, uh, the parents and the teenagers and getting them through this challenging time. Yeah. I think, um, the three of us here, are all, uh, spine surgeons as well and couldn't agree more. Um, very rewarding field. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit and, um, cause we're going to be pretty serious, uh, with a lot of topics on this podcast, but, uh, I also want to know um, a little bit more about you as a person. So uh, what is your like worst vice, like trash TV or are you a chain smoker or like go clubbing seals on the weekends? You know, what is like the biggest vice that maybe no one knows about you? Well, I only read fiction on vacation because like once I start reading a book, I won't set it down. <laughs> and my husband remembers, I think it was like the last Harry Potter book came out and we went to my aunt and uncle's house and I literally did not move off the couch nor exchange conversation for about five and a half hours. And he was quite upset that he was left alone to talk to my aunt and uncle. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty bad, but still um, somewhat educational, or at least it can be a workout for the mind. Um, well, I just, I, I discipline myself, right? I, I just don't start a new book if I have some place to be or something to do. Yeah, I, I can I very much identify with that. Um, I, I know a, a number of trainees that you either currently work with or have worked with in the past. Um, in fact, one of our um, partners who's uh, signed on here at Vanderbilt was a, was a Mayo uh, resident. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, what sort of things, uh, what environment you foster there that um, brings people in and engages them. And I'm, I'm curious, what career advice do you most commonly give to your trainees? My own pathway was very much to follow what I love doing. And I think that truly is the, the pathway to, to happiness. So we do encounter people that feel like, gosh, I need to go back to small town Nebraska or I have to join, you know, one specific group, but I, I really encourage the trainees to be open and to um, figure out what they're passionate about and what's really going to fuel them and keep them coming back to work excited each day for the next 30 years. Um, because I, I certainly was surprised. I, I didn't think I'd be end up in Pete's ortho. Um, thankful that I did. Um, so I, I really enjoy curiosity. And again, um, not necessarily committing to the pathway you think is the one you think is the correct one. Well, I think anyone who's um, heard you speak um, uh, would, would say that's pretty easily identifiable that you still uh, enjoy what you do. And um, uh, every day you're kind of inspired by that. Um, and then uh, we are coming up on the Thanksgiving holiday. And so last kind of get to know you question is what is your favorite Thanksgiving holiday tradition? Um, well, I thought you were going to ask what food. <laughs> well, give me that. I mean, some people it's which, which sort of food stands out in their family. 
Um, we usually spend the whole day cooking and it's not a big group. Like we all, the three kids and my husband and I and my dad, we just sit around and we cook a bunch of different dishes. And then the last five years we've done like a, a fun run. So usually we'll get up, do a run, come home and then cook for the next 10 hours. All the kids go with you as well? Well, um, we're aging up. You know, the eight-year-old usually says no, but I think this year we're going to run around a lake and there's kind of two or three different routes. So we'll have a walking party and a, and a running party. That sounds great. Um, makes you at least earn your meal a little bit for later. <laughs> well, we will go ahead and get into um, uh, a couple of the articles that you've authored recently. Anyone who wants to learn more about these, we're going to have uh, the, the citations posted on the show notes. And so we're not going to go into all the details about them, but um, I want, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who maybe aren't spine surgeons or aren't interested in that. And um, admittedly, some of the articles uh, have a focus on spine, um, but I think there's a lot apart from spine, like this one we're going to talk about, you know, is a randomized controlled trial, which in surgery at all is an amazing feat. And so um, we're probably going to focus more on, you know, the, the methodology and what you learned with doing that. Um, that's applicable to everyone, even if you're not interested in the actual results of a spine study. So this is the effect of implant density on adolescent idiopathic scoliosis fusion. This is a result of the minimized implants, maximized outcomes, randomized controlled trial, uh, JBJS uh, in print this month. Um, and this is a study I had been hearing about uh, ever since I kind of got into peds orthopedics. I think you were in the midst of data collection. I've heard you present um, kind of intermittent data on this, but um, basically you took high density group and a low density screw group with a standardized curve, linky 1A curves. And it sounds as though the surgeons themselves would do high and low, depending on what they were randomized to. And they were given a notice maybe the day before or the morning of their surgery about how they had to do their screw maps. And um, your main outcome was percent of correction of the coronal curve, although you did look at a number of secondary outcomes, reoperation, secondary curve correction, kyphosis, et cetera. Um, there's so much to discuss with this, but I, as I mentioned, I want to give the listeners a little bit of a look under the hood of a randomized controlled trial in orthopedics. And so, you know, when I read through the methods, I kind of thought, um, you know, they seem very thorough. It seems like you had thought of everything. And I suspect at the time you probably thought they were pretty unassailable, right? If you are designing a study, you're going to design it best quality you can. Um, in retrospect, how do you view that? Are there things that kind of came up and surprised you that, looking back, you kind of wish you would handle differently, or do you still feel like it's um, as high quality as you could have put out? Well, I think retrospectively, it would have been good to have a little more financing. We sat out to do this and had, you know, around $350,000, $400,000, which sounds like a lot of money up front. Um, but by the time you go through the whole process and enroll all these patients over years, um, at certain points, the, the only person on staff running the MIMO trial was our very faithful partners at Harm Study Group that served as the contract research organization and did the radiographic measurement, and then myself and Dr. Polly. Um, so we were doing a lot of this work ourselves um, with the help of statisticians and the like. Um, so I think that was one thing is we probably were underfunded. Um, also our, um, enrollment criteria were really quite narrow. So, um, and I very distinctly remember our study group 
this was born out of a study group that we met two, three times a year um, over a course of about seven years. Um, I very clearly remember in like, we were discussing, okay, we're going to do lanky ones because we want to go for maximal correction. You'd hate to dick, do like a lanky three and someone went for a sub maximal correction because then that's not going to be comparable. Um, and then, um, and then we're like, well, we'll limit it to some one A's and we'll get some one B's as well. Whereas retrospectively, it was just very, very hard to get enough enrollment in the study. And I wish we'd included two A's and two B's and, uh, kind of opened it up. Um, a lot of patients, um, are not, um, one A's. And I would get, um, you know, emails from study teams and saying, Hey, do you think it's a B or a C? And there's a lot of one B's out there. There aren't as many one A's. Um, and some of the one A's that are out there are actually kind of an atypical curve pattern where you're going way off to the right side. Um, um, you know, Rady Children's popularized that as the lanky 1AR. Right, right. Um, then the downstream effect is it's not generalizable, right? So our final statement is this only applies to lanky 1A curves. So um, I think retrospectively, we would have incur- included more curve types. Um, and then um, I would have included more sites just to get the enrollment done. Um it's kind of like vancomycin powder. Like you just want to like overwhelm the incision with a super high concentration level. Like that's the best way to do an RCT is just to try and get all the enrollment done, you know, in a year, because if the enrollment's dragging on over three, four, five years, people just lose energy and interest in the question. That's including myself. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) So so it makes me want to ask, I mean, you started this, I I think you initiated this project coming out of fellowship, but when did you guys stop enrollment? How many years into it? Or how recently did you stop enrollment? Well, roughly, it doesn't have to be exact. Yeah, I think it was around, um, you know, 2016, 2017. And then you need two year follow up, right? Because it's a surgical study. So 2019. Right. And wow. then you don't have to your follow-up. You know, I think it was on something like 78% of patients and you need 80%. So I spent like a year trying to track down the last few patients. And then the other thing I'm really interested in is kind of the adoption of this into our practice, or I mean, starting with your practice. So were you more high density or low density coming into it? And what are you now? Very revealing question. Uh, I came <laughs> out of Dallas. And Dallas actually is quite low density. I remember among the last cases I did in fellowship was, uh, you know, healthy 16-year-old male AIS that Dr. Herring and I did. And we were having such a great time. We just put in like lots of screws, which was probably like 1.7, 1.8 density. And then at post-op conference, we were just um, completely blown away by comments. Everybody saying, why did you put in so many screws? What were you doing? Um, and so I think low density was more the norm in fellowship, like probably 1.5, 1.6 screws per level fused. So like 16 screws for a 10 level fusion. And, uh, and then I went to university of Minnesota. So I was with Dr. Polly and Dr. Polly's the one that posed this question initially. He's high density, right? Never yeah. met a pedicle that doesn't get a screw. So I, I was about to add, think, I'm looking at these other guys here. I was about to say what was said in our conference in post-op when, if it was a 1.9 density in San Diego. Yeah. That, that you failed by not getting that last. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what happened to that one? Yeah. 
Um, all right, sorry to disrupt your train of thought there. No, it's perfect. And interestingly, I had one colleague here at Mayo who was more like a 1.5, 1.6 density person. And then Peter Newton came as a visiting speaker and showed his x-rays. And now that person is closer to 1.9, 2.0. We're really swayed by the people around us and by our training. Um, I think I'm probably more like a 1.7 these days. But my, my take-home points are if I hit a screw with a tiny little pedicle and I navigate, I like to navigate. So I navigate, I see a tiny little pedicle. I look at the pedicle above, like usually this is like left T6, right? Or left T7. Mm -hmm. I look at the pedicle above. I look at the pedicle below. If the one above looks better, I'll just skip the really ugly one. You know, the one where you have to get out the mallet or you have to drill with a tiny little drill to get through yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then this was not incorporated in MIMO or any of the biomechanical modeling studies that we did with it. But if you have a tiny little pedicle that measures two millimeters and you put in a four millimeter or four or five millimeter diameter screw, the in out in, like truly what's the pull out strength of that? Like, like what's your bang for your buck? Aren't you going to do better by getting a really good screw in one level above and one level below? So I have no shame in skipping a pedicle. And I think um, it probably speeds your operative time and helps your flow. Unfortunately, we weren't able to show that in our study. There was so much inner surgeon variability that we couldn't show a difference in blood loss or operative time. Um, I guess we could have asked surgeons to record, you know, how long did it take to do the screw placement portion of the procedure. But yeah, that's asking a lot of surgeons to do. But, but I mean, even even without the time benefit, I mean, I mean, actually, your their complications noted in here. One of the complications in the high density group was, I think, an errant screw. But then on a counter to that, one of the complications in the low density group was, I think, there was some loss, of, like some uh, pseudoarthrosis or something at one of the levels. So it's kind of the two things you're afraid of. Both can rear their heads. Um, so it's kind of pick your uh, pick your complication. Well, and, and I'm sure you've discussed the results with other surgeons um, out of the people who maybe those are involved in the study or colleagues of yours. Do you know of anyone who's kind of said, you know, maybe I can use a little less screws than I used to? I mean, any, anyone you've talked to who's on that train of thought? I would like to do a follow-up study and maybe we could make it a public follow-up study. So, I mean, send me your last five <laughs> lanky 1a cases just email them to me and uh and we'll write a paper and and we'll see what common density is i think it'd be fascinating i think that would be fascinating i'm really curious as to how much uh how much uh, information it takes to get someone to change their practice um and to be fair to be fair we weren't powered for complications right we would probably need like 1500 patients or 2000 patients to be powered for complications so that really the only thing we could power it to was percent coronal cob angle correction yeah. which is a boring outcome measure it's kind of boring right wouldn't you rather have it be like a srs score or post-op pain or rate of revision but but when you get down and dirty with a power analysis oftentimes you end up with an outcome measure you don't like yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think most of us don't think that the actual cob angle matters. It's the balance between your end plates, except that I think a lot of people's justification in their minds for using more screws is to get better correction. Like 
something about showing the family a spine that looks straighter, we all think justifies a surgery or is going to make the patient happier, even if the outcome scores or complications don't reflect that. So I think we're all striving to get, as you said, we're all striving to get that Peter Newton looking x-ray. Um, so when he shows up as your visiting professor, you're going to increase your number of screws. And then the sagittal plate is probably what really matters, right? And I wonder, there's this whole transition, you know, from the hybrid construct to the all pedicle screw construct, and there were a lot of flat backs. And then we started learning, you know, you need to recreate the thoracic kyphosis. And then we transitioned into these really stiff rods. And I don't think the verdict's out on those quite yet. Like, is the really stiff 6-0 rod really the next move? But one thing I have learned in this whole journey, and again, working pretty closely with a cold polytechnic and um, uh, Montreal, uh, Carl Eric Aubin's group, you know, Saint Justine's group, um, basically, um, you know, probably the implant density doesn't matter that much. It's more things like releases and uh, rod contour and rod stiffness, these things in the multivariate analyses make a bigger difference. Yeah, um, I'm, we're going to definitely get into your your thoughts on that um, when we stir the pot a little bit later. Um, Carter, Josh, you have any questions about this study? There's so many things we could touch on, but um, I'm going to leave it to the listeners to read most of it. Um, so it was kind of curious that there was more thoracic kyphosis in the low density implant group. Do you think that was just sort of a fluke of the statistics or do you think there was anything to that? Oh, I think it's real. I think um, um, if you're not paying careful attention, you if you have really super high density, you can make a pretty flat back. All right. So talk me through that, because I always think of it the opposite. If I have more implants in there, maybe it gives me more power to pull the spine to some some, you know, over contoured thick rods and regenerate more thoracic kyphosis. So what is it about the the high or low density uh, implants that's, that's causing that? Okay, I think I'm just going to be super honest here and say I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff and this is not data that's supported by the study. That's and our if favorite you look kind. At, okay, <laughs> if you're looking at all the um, different articles, you know, on pedicle screws, like there was this whole generation where we were doing better with kyphosis with hooks. Um, and there's different schools of thought. So one school of thought was that the hooks didn't re didn't derotate the spine, and so you ended up with a very um, um, you know the appearance of kyphosis when really you just haven't derotated enough. So then the, then the next school of thought is that we're we're derotating. You can see how flat the back really was, um, um, and that if you don't do a good job of contouring your rod and doing posterior releases. You're just going to leave them with that really flat back. But I guess we don't know. I think the fair thing to say is we don't we don't know. But I think it might be real. I have patients where I have a super high implant density, and I work really, really, really hard to get the coronal plane straight. And then I get my standing post-op x-ray, and I'm like, oh, crap, I should have done more on the sagittal plane. So the, the other article I wanted to talk about at a JBJS this month is called Non-Fusion versus Fusion Surgery in Pediatric Idiopathic Scoliosis. What trade-offs and outcome are acceptable to the patient and family? Uh, I think it's a really innovative study, and I've seen a number of recent studies like this. Um, this one is looking at the potential benefits of non-fusion, um, presents them as preserved growth, mobility, 
perhaps some reduced adjacent segment disease. And um, the ultimate study design is a survey-based discrete choice experiment. Uh, you guys had a number of patients, both prior fusion patients, prior non-fusion patients, and also patients that were pre-op and also some dyads of patients and families. And um, we've actually talked about a study with, I think, similar methodology from with this out of Duke, talking about femur fracture treatment preference. And um, you've got a great picture of the study or the survey example on there, but essentially um, you spend a lot of time designing this survey so that um, the patients are going to make pretty discrete choices that uh, end up highlighting how they weight these different um, these different categories or different outcomes. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more um, for the group on the on the uh, methods and maybe the the outcomes that you thought were the most impactful. For sure, this was a, a super interesting collaboration. Um, it was funded by an SDA grant, and we worked with. Um, uh, basically, the the team at the FDA that does orthopedic um, medical device approvals. So, um, Captain Pete is the um, director of OHT6, which is the orthopedic wing of the FDA. And then Vincent Devlin, another one of our co-authors, um, is a spine surgeon who is now chief medical officer for the orthopedic section of the FDA. We worked with Harm Study Group. And then we also worked with additional FDA collaborators who have expertise in um, assessment of patient preferences, uh, as well um, as uh, Dr. Juan Marcos Sepulveda, who is at Duke, uh, and his whole career is, or a portion of his career is uh, shared decision-making and uh, assessment of patient preferences. And the FDA has done a fair amount of work on this, um, looking at obesity and uh, gastric bypass surgery. And that was um, one of the studies that inspired this work. Um, basically, that FDA's work found that patients were willing to undergo gastric bypass procedures that held a significant amount of personal risk, significant amount of uh, risk of mortality, um, because they so valued getting out of this state of being obese and wanting to be in a healthier um, physical state. Um, the novel aspects about this study is that we were looking at children. There haven't been a, done a lot of patient preferences study regarding children. And the question of how do you best assess the patient and the parent's preferences. Um, we chose to take an empiric approach where we would go in the clinic room and see who was there and give the families the surveys Sometimes the parent and the child both took a survey. Sometimes they did it together. Um, we asked at the end of the survey to fill in the bubble, you know, who filled this out? Was the parent, was the child? Did you do it together? Um, and so from one standpoint, that could be seen as a weakness. Uh, but from the other standpoint, we felt like, well, this is maybe, again, just a survey of how these decisions are being made. Um, we had about half the cohort were patients and families that were thinking about uh, primarily for tubal body tethering versus fusion. And the other cohort were families that had already gone through the surgery. So had already had VBT or had already had a fusion surgery. Um, and again, you could say would it be best to do only pre-op patients, but we had the 
experience of patients who'd already been through it and the opinions of people who'd already been through it. Uh, so I, I think it was a pretty cool study where we had multiple centers and multiple opinions and, and how do we put this together to basically figure out what's the phenotype of and the preferences of a, a parent or a child who chooses to do vertebral body tethering um, instead of fusion. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I remember as when we started offering that as an option here, spent a lot of time thinking about family educational materials and how to talk about these two options. And it's always going to be so weighted by us as a surgeon. And so this tool, I think, is really insightful because there is, there's not just one surgery that's right for the situation, which is, I think, how we view it. And um, you make a great point of discussion about how we, we probably tend to be conservative because at least some of us are because we're used to fusion. We know the outcome and no surgeon wants to have failures on their hands. And so, you know, how, what, what's, what we think is best for the patient may actually just be best for us sometimes. Um, and so it's a little bit tricky, but I think some of the things that I wanted to highlight. So your prior fusion patients mostly had a preference for fusion as a, and uh, as an outcome, but they mostly cared about appearance and a low failure rate. Uh, which makes sense. So if you value those sorts of things, you're probably going to choose fusion. The prior non-fusion patients were least concerned about appearance and primarily concerned about preservation of motion and then a little bit about recovery time. And um, it, it seems to me as though these are kind of two separate patient populations, then selecting appropriately two separate uh, and related treatment groups. Uh, I'm wondering how you can potentially apply this now and what your conversation is like with patients making this decision. Is there any way to kind of make this point of care um, to where you can kind of give these patients a personality test and see what choice is going to be best for them with the data to back it up? For sure. We've used the results of this survey to develop um, an online tool. So it's a, a prototype right now that we're currently testing at three pilot sites. So we have a shared decision tool, which clicks through about eight um, panes. Um, and the child actually is asked to decide, you know, which attribute do you want to hear about? And we have a little cartoon for each of the descriptors about motion, descriptors about recovery time. Um, and we're actively studying this tool and, and hopefully it'll be available to the general public in about a year. Um, but we use the results of this survey to kind of figure out what what do parents and children care the most about? Um, and um, and I had that same concern, Craig, that uh, I felt like I was being biased. Like, you know, this family wants tether. You walk into the room and it's just so easy not to talk to them about fusion. Um, and, and vice versa, you say, oh, gosh, this family looks like they're, you know, a solid Midwest farmer. They drove 10 hours. They're here to get the job done. They don't want yeah. to hear about new yeah. angled approaches. So it's like my stereotypes are being overlaid on these different families. So, so now I like having this tool, which is currently in the research phase. Um, but, um, but I go through the same conversation every time. That's and then so I feel cool. like I've done my due diligence of educating uh, the different families. And right now we're, we're videotaping ourselves with GoPros with the parents and the children and the tool um, and all the more reason I try and do a really good job and uh, try and be unbiased through the conversation. 
What what surprised you the most with the outcomes of this study? Anything where that you weren't expecting? I kind of think that these at least outcomes that I highlighted seem fairly intuitive and what you would expect, but uh, anything surprised you with this study? I mean, I was blown away by how important appearance was. Appearance was the most important thing. Yeah. Which I guess you could guess, but I just I just wasn't expecting to see that come out so strongly in the data. And I thought reoperation um, and um, needing a second surgery, I thought that would come out pretty strong. But actually, that was one of the less important rated factors and things like failure rate. So again, with vertebral body tethering, if you're talking about a cord breakage, we're seeing that in a third or more of patients by three years. And failure was something that, that the families really didn't like that word failure. Yeah. and um, I'm trying to figure out how to explain that better, right? Because you talk about the cord breaking and that's always a very scary thought for many of these families to hear about a cord breaking. So I'm still trying to find the right verbiage to describe that. Right. And in some way, it's almost expected with this technology. Like we're, we're kind of planning for that as a surgeon. You know, it's going to break eventually. Um, I was also shocked, uh, like recovery time didn't seem to matter at all. You know, I think that, you know, we say, oh, early recovery time with tether, you don't have to wait for it to fuse, get back to your activities. And most patients and parents didn't seem to really care about that. I mean, I would boil it down to they really care about the result, rightfully so, that is going to last for 70, 80 years. You know, it's the appearance and it's their motion or the things that are going to stick with them. If they got to go through a little bit longer recovery or a few extra surgeries to get to that end result, they seem pretty willing to do that, um, which um, I, I don't know if I was expecting that. And now it's the onus on us to prove what really gives the best function. I don't know that we've truly proven that vertebral body tether preserves more function. So, so somehow we need to set about to evaluate that question and find out who needs that extra level of function. Are we just talking about athletes? just talking about the lumbar spine, um, but what segment of, of the population needs that motion? Yeah. Maybe they all do. I don't know. <laughs> and we'll, it'll take us uh, decades to really know. Josh Carter, any thoughts? Yeah, Dr. Larson, I, I, this work is so important and such a, a important um, next steps with tethering to really figure out what are we doing for the patients. I, I think it's important that we get the patient's um, thoughts on it, right? Where I would, I have no data to support any of this, but I would suspect that parents would probably rate appearance lower, whereas the patients themselves, they're not having pain. They're not as worried about, you know, 30 year outcomes. They're not as worried about some of the other things, whereas appearance to at least a lot of, a lot of my patients, that's a big part of the, the spine surgeries, right? How are they going to look afterwards? Um, and so I think that's important. You mentioned getting the kind of not just the parent input, but getting the patient input beforehand to really try and hone in on this. Is that something that you have seen? And as you kind of thought through and worked through some of this, that some of the outcomes are different, what the goals are from the surgery with the patients versus the, the parents? For sure. And we actually have a second manuscript that um, um, Dr. Sepulveda and Dr. Devlin are, are leading off on, again, looking at that kind of interplay of how does this decision-making work with the child versus the parent versus the two together. Um, I have, my, my practice, you know, as, as we've discussed, has, has uh, changed and 
um, morphed over the years. Um, and so right now I have like quite a few younger children that we're doing tethering for. And then I have older children that are, um, you know, interested in fusion, but haven't decided to have fusion. And then it seems like every June I have this group of like 17 to 19 year olds where they're old enough now to sign their own consent. The parents feel comfortable in the child having a fusion. The child wants a fusion. The child is no longer a child. And so I'm doing kind of the, the fusions in these slightly older patients when they can sign their own consent. Now, I, I said that to one of my colleagues and they're like, well, they're not really adults when they're 18. Uh, so maybe when I have an 18 year old, that's how I'll feel too. Um, but, but somehow when, when the, the child has said for many years, they want a fusion, they don't like the way they look, they don't like how they feel, they want it taken care of and they turn 18, there's like this process where we all feel it's okay now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think identifying that earlier can help. Again, we don't want to introduce our biases into the conversation, but I think starting from the patient's goal and guiding the dis the discussion based on that, right? Where if we can identify the patients who are most concerned about the appearance and kind of their, their overall um, alignment, not because of what their outcomes will be based on sagittal balance, but how do they look, right? What does that rotation look like? If we can identify those patients earlier on, I think it will help us to be able to guide that decision-making a little better instead of waiting until they're 18 and can sign their own consent. Um, I um, There are areas where I still am very you know, assertive. Um, like if someone's a candidate for a selective thoracic fusion and they still tell me, oh, I don't like my waist prominence, I don't like my trunk shift, like I'll still do a selective thoracic fusion for them. I'll do anything I can to avoid fusing someone's lumbar spine. Yeah, and it's only a handful of times where we've had to go back and revise it. Um, but in that, in that regard, I feel very comfortable saying, ah, just live with your lumbar prominence and, and, um, you know, come back later if, if you, if you truly feel like you want to be fused L3. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna switch gears away from decision-making, um, uh, and more technical stuff. So this next article is from Spine Deformity, also this month. It's called Radiation Exposure for Navigated Techniques and AIS. Is there a difference between preoperative CT and intraoperative CT? And so this is a matched cohort, 19 patients in each group. Um, you, you guys, uh, you've talked about how you prefer to use navigation uh, in your institution. And um, it seems like you've got two methods of doing that. Uh, the one that, um, and I, I personally use the intraop like an O-arm and then uh, navigated arrays. And then you also have, I think more recently done pre-op CTs with a, like a flash um, or whatever they're calling that system that's generic, um, but um, the flash system that then um, will recognize the anatomy and drop, correlate that to your pre-op CT and allow you to navigate from that. Um, and uh, outcomes were not based off of accuracy or really time or anything like that, although you did measure time um, and accuracy to some degree. Um, really, it was just looking at um, how much radiation does it cost this patient? And because um, obviously radiation over a lifetime is going to be very important. Um, <clears throat> I, I think the main thing I want to get our listeners to hear about this is the difference between a low dose and a high dose protocol. And we'll be very specific. We'll even put on the show notes some of the setting recommendations you have later, because um, I think I heard you talk about this at some point years ago and made that change. And uh, I think it's made a world of difference uh, in terms of the amount of radiation patients get. 
but overall, do you want to maybe summarize the takeaway between these two uh, these two methods of doing intra navigation and what you uh, what you think results in less less radiation for our patients? For sure. And um, you highlighted one of our one of our weaknesses is that we don't have any metrics so far of screw accuracy. Really, the best study would be to get a CT scan postoperatively on all these children, uh, but I can't really justify that. So I, basically, in our group here, we've had to just wait five or six years, and then some of these patients who live in our community come back and they get a CT for another reason, for back pain or car wreck or appendicitis, and then we're starting to pick up some of these CTs down the road where we can, you know, look at screw accuracy. Um, so we, we can't really assess accuracy. That being said, clinically, I feel pretty confident in, in both systems, both with the pre-op and uh, inter-op CT. You know, you, you, you make your track, you feel with a ball tip probe, you feel the sense of screw purchase going down. So, so I feel like both are, are, are acceptable in, in my hands. Um, we started out using interoperative CT about 10, 12 years ago, so I've had significant more experience with that, and one of our big breakthroughs, I think, was realizing that there's dials on the front of the machine and that the radiology tech um, will listen to you. You know, it is your OR, and you're obtaining the imaging to place screws for your procedure, so if, if you ask the radiology tech to turn the knob down on the front, um, you can really drop the radiation exposure by like 70% or 80%, both for the patient's sake, but also for everybody else, the anesthesiologist, the radiology technicians, for everybody in the room, you can significantly decrease um, the amount of exposure. And the reason that is, is we're looking at bone. So bone is really, really hard. Um, we're not looking at lungs. We're not looking at the aorta. Um, we just need to see the the cortices, basically. So you can run the machine pretty low and still get a good picture. Um, right now, I'm using either 70 or 80 kV uh, for what I'd say is a normal-sized patient, you know, somebody less than 75 or 80 kilos, um, and that works really quite well. Um, and that brings down your interoperative dose from something on the range of, you know, two times annual background radiation or five millisieverts down to closer to one or 1 1.2 um, millisieverts, so like a third of annual background radiation. So we started out about three years ago using the pre-op CT, and uh, I felt fairly strongly we should make sure that that's the same dose or even less dose preferably than the inter-op CT. So we worked with one of our radiation physicists and the CT scanners aren't as quite straightforward as the interoperative cone beam CT. Um, there's a lot of different scanners and there's a lot of different protocols. So I think it's helpful for you to enlist the help of radiology at your own center to figure out, um, you know, how to get this low dose setting on your pre-op CT. Um, but basically we, we created a, uh, a scoop or a, a protocol for low dose preoperative CTs, which worked great and actually turned out to be even less than our interoperative CT. And I don't have this in the paper, but I'd say, in my opinion, the image quality and the resolution is actually quite a bit better. Um, on our low-dose preoperative CTs, like I can actually see the spinal cord, which I've never, ever seen on interoperative CT. I mean, you can see the spinal cord. Um, you can see portions of the anatomy much more clearly. Uh, this, again, is not data. This is my experience. But, um, like... 
um, for some of those lanky D pedicles. Like you can actually see a little tiny channel to go down with the pre-op CT, which historically I don't think I was seeing on the interoperative CT. And then we're not having to drag a CT scanner into our OR, which is also very convenient. So I think for the right workflow, it can work out really well. The downside is even though we were requesting this low-dose study, um, we had a handful of cases where the child got a standard CT and the standard CT was a lot of radiation. And this was at 120 kV, which again is kind of your standard adult dose. Um, but these patients um, ended up something around 17 millisieverts or six times annual background radiation. Um, we were a little bit upset and uh, talked <laughs> to our radiology department. And, uh, and now we actually have um, a button on Epic. So we were able to get a button on Epic. So, so now it's fail safe and none of our patients are going to get 17 millisieverts of preoperative scanning. It makes me think back over the years on the patients that have congenital scoliosis or neurofibromatosis or, or something where I felt that I needed that pre-op CT and, and I didn't have that low-dose protocol. So now I'm using that low-dose protocol for pretty much all of my spine planning, and we've been able to print 3D models off of the low-dose pre-op protocol. Um, so I, I hopefully it just raises people's awareness that there are um, mechanisms to get very nice, high-quality pre-op CTs at a low dose. Um, and as far as which one's better, you can see in the numbers, they're very similar. So I think I'd use whatever system your um, hospital has and what you feel like you can do a good job with, whether it's freehand or fluoroscopy or navigation. Yeah. So, so to summarize, if you make the transition to a low dose protocol, whether it's pre-op or intra-op, it's probably going to end up being pretty close to the same and significantly smaller than our standard dose CTs. Um, seem to be conclusions. I'm just going to highlight, um, like I said, I, I made this change after listening to you at one point and, um, you know, walking in front of your radiology tech when they, when they got your patient in the scanner and telling them to turn it down and everyone's like, I've never really done this before. I don't even know if it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to look. Um, you can look at this, this study and see the pictures. You have a great figure that has a full dose and then a low dose in both systems. And you can see certainly the quality is diminished, but you can still see where the vertebrae are. Like to your point, you can see the cortices, which are the things you need to see. And um, so if, if you haven't done it yet, I'm just gonna urge anyone who's using navigation to just go take that KV button all the way down to 70 or 80, depending on your patient's weight. Um, if they're less than 60 kgs, it seems like you can do 70 or less um, and just give it a try and uh and see see what you think because i think you'll be helping a lot of your patients out i was looking for like a short of the old total cereal commercial does anybody remember the total total cereal so so you get the same nutrition of one bowl of total <laughs> people say hope you're hungry you're gonna have to eat eight bowls of kellogg's cornflakes in order to get the same nutrition <laughs> you can get six loto ct scans <laughs> for the cost of one standard one so even if you screw up a few times, you're still like less than what you would have otherwise done. You know, you could get the 70 kV and if you don't like it, then get the 80 kV and you're still like way under what it would have cost to have done the typical 120 kV. Because it's not a linear formula, right? The, the radiation goes up kind of exponentially. Josh, Carter, um, I don't know how often you guys are using uh, intraoperative or preoperative CT for navigation purposes. 
But if you're not already doing a low dose, has Dr. Larson convinced you? So we use 3D fluoro for navigating all of our uh, spines with an unspecified company. And, you know, their, their marketing material shows that it's lower radiation than an O-arm. And what you've inspired me to do is go and look at it and see, are they comparing to a regular dose O-arm? Um, how does it, how does our intra-op uh, radiation from, you know, what's often two spins for, uh, for most curves compared to the, uh, the information in this, um, in this paper. So thank That's you great. for doing that. Yeah. And for me, I mostly don't navigate screws. So, um, I was mostly thinking about actually CT scans interop for dysplasia versus post-op CTs. Um, you know, Dr. Weinstein here has a long protocol of getting post-op CTs and has it down to just the perfect slice right through the acetabulum, seeing everything you need to see and nothing else. And we compared that to interop CT, thinking that an O-arm spin on a low on a low dose um, would be far less radiation. We found that we were actually giving the kid way more radiation in an interop spin, even though the dose was really less because we were getting such a huge a huge spread, um, way more than we needed. So we completely changed our protocol to get a comparable small slicer. So uh, I would say in all aspects of, of care, but particularly with radiation, um, I think the simple thing of just looking into it, seeing what you're, what you're using and using very thoughtful people like Dr. Larson and that what they published to be a guide to know that you're getting good enough imaging and that you can most of the time turn things way down from where they kind of come st as a standard. And ask oh. for help too, right? I mean, every hospital I think has a radiation physicist or a radiologist with an interest in this area. It's it's, it's a little bit technical, and uh, it's helpful to have um, a colleague that that understands the ins and outs. Um, the uh, the last one I just want to maybe just touch on this briefly. Uh, this is automated measurements of inner screw angles and vertebral body tethering patients with a deep learning. Um, so this is in the Spine Journal. Um, and essentially, this is um, you and your um, your colleagues uh, and uh, collaborators um, doing deep learning and machine learning to uh, automatically measure inner screw angles for vertebral body tethering patients. This has applications, as you point out in the paper, to tracking whether the angles are improving and getting growth modulation post uh, tether placement or whether they've ruptured. Um, and anyone who's done any studies on this knows it can be pretty time intensive and honestly pretty quite very quite variable when you're making these measurements by hand. And so having something point of care that automatically does it is um, uh, I view that as kind of a, a moonshot, but it looks like you're actually pretty close to uh, obtaining that and getting something that is point of care. So if we can only focus on one thing, my question for you would be um, either. You know, how, how do we all go about fostering these great relationships with collaborators like you've done in so many ways? And machine learning is such a great avenue for that. And then the second thing is, um, uh, how, how are you going to be able to apply this and use it in your clinic? How close are you to that step where you can filter all your patients through this algorithm and see if they've ruptured when you see them that day? Yeah, I would love that. The, we just had a big discussion about this. You know, we have this very nice AI group at Mayo. So we have the orthopedic surgery AI lab and we meet from four to five on Mondays. And I'm very impatient. Like we're making all these great protocols that can see, you know, a total hip stem. Is it subsiding? It can calculate 
you know, the acetabulum for total hips. Um, we're able to, we're working on an etiology sorter right now that would help you decide whether you need a pre-op MRI or not for a patient coming in with what looks like routine scoliosis. Um, but getting it from uh, a piece of code that's posted on GitHub, which is kind of like the PubMed of coders and published in the medical literature, getting it from there to point of care in your clinic, you know, drop down menu from Epic or drop down menu from PAX, that is really tricky and very expensive. And I'm thinking about how are we going to make this happen as a society so that we all have access to it and we're not paying a subscription model for our hand bone age and a subscription model for our tether screw calculator and a subscription model for our Cobb angular calculator. Like, like how do we use um, our work to further the science and our communal knowledge of these disease conditions to make sure that it's publicly available? Yeah, I've heard a lot of different people pursuing you know, different avenues of machine learning for image recognition. And I always wonder where it's going to end up. You know, does it end up as a PI in some private company? And, you know, I hadn't thought about the idea that there is maybe some public free platform where then we can all then apply these amazing algorithms that the different researchers and leaders in our field are helping to develop. Um, that would be great. I, I think we should really support that from an organizational standpoint. Hopefully someone in Posna is listening to this and working on it. I think it's the future and I think it'll help make our measurements, as you said, more reliable. How often do we see somebody that comes in with a Cobb angle and, you know, my friend down the road measured the Cobb angle and I measure three degrees different and the family's like, oh, but, but my colleague said it measured 48 and you said 51. Um, I mean, maybe the Cobb angle is a bad number, right? Maybe we need to pick a new number to measure that, you know, when everybody here tonight measures it, we all get the same number. And then when we measure it again in three weeks, we all get the same number a second time. And and maybe understanding how the computer thinks about it will help us understand how to think about it better, too. Yeah, great points. I think before uh, we get too far behind, maybe we'll go into stirring the pot. That was... Um, Incredible. I love hearing all that. And there's so much more we could have asked. Um, but this this next section's um something where we just kind of give you common clinical scenarios or things that come up in practice and um want to know. Um, generally, these are controversies without the right answer, but we're assuming tonight that you have all the correct answers. And so whatever you say goes, and there really is no hedging. Carter gets really angry when you hedge. And you just don't want to see that. <laughs> so uh, tonight, the first question is related to your MIMO study. Um, what is the correct density and the layout of screws to use for AIS? Linky 1A. 1.6. Right in the middle. All right. It's two. Whenever I did 1.4, I always wanted one or two more screws. Where, uh, where do you focus your screws then? What sort of layout algorithm do you follow? Block at the top, block at the bottom, block in the middle. I think that works best if you're doing kind of cantilever, just pull the spine to the rod and using a stiff rod. If you're going to derotate and do the old Cotrell Dubuset um, derotational maneuver, then you can put a few more screws on the left and then a few, 
fewer screws on the right, which is usually the resident side. Let me ask, um, do you do PONTI or PCOs, poster column osteotomies, um, frequently for 65 degree AIS? Usually it's over 70 unless they're really hypokyphotic. And here's my very unscientific way of doing it. I'll put in the right number of screws and then we'll push on the spine and see how much it moves. Now that I'm doing a lot of these 18-year-olds with different spines, you know, I end up doing a few more ponties. Yep, I hear you. Um, all right. So uh, no PCOs are not allowed uh, unless the patient is old, according to Dr. Larson. All right, perfect. Uh, in 10 years. Or stiff. Or <laughs> stiff. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all right. In 10 years, do you think we will all be using robots to place pedicle screws? I think if we do our job right, yes. I think if we do our job right. If we do our job right, it should be automatic and nearly risk-free or as perfect as it can be. And faster. Yeah. Okay. All right. In 10 years, what do you think the ratio of fusion to non-fusion surgery will be for AIS in the United States of America? I think it'll be 80% non-fusion and 20% fusion. Wow. Wow. What do you think it is now? Is it 2080 or 1090 less? I don't know, 1585. 15% non-fusion, 85% fusion. Okay. Um, and it's going to totally flip on its head in 10 years. So any device companies listening, they know where to invest. All right. Uh, and the last one, what is the proper can, way? Can I say why? Oh, can I yes. say why? Yes, please. Okay. Because this is totally non-scientific, but when my patients come back, I ask them, how does your back feel? Does it feel normal? That's my question. Does your back feel normal? And I'd say, you know, I can't think of a VBT patient that has said, my back doesn't feel normal. It feels the same before surgery as it did after, if not better. And if you ask fusion kids that, does it feel normal? Like they don't, they don't usually say yes. You have much more normal uh, and active patients than mine, I'm thinking. <laughs> Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. Back. back all right. To all right. Show. Sorry. Um, okay. Uh, last one was proper way to prepare a turkey. Um, you deep fryer, you brine and bake, you order out. What do you do? We have a pellet stove. So we put it on, Ooh, kind of smoke, smoke it on the pellet stove. It. Yeah. yeah. How many hours do you go on that? Mm, four or five. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Nice. Um, Josh, Carter, anything to add? In in a few years, what are the uh, next few things that AI is going to be? What are the things AI is going to be doing for us in clinic in ten years? Top three. I think it'll measure all X rays and give us a three D model, and then we'll have some kind of like dashboard with like genetic factors and the family history, and you know maybe some morphology of the child, right? And give us some type of predictive score. You know, is this curve going to progress or is it not going to progress? Then we can quit bracing these kids that have very aggressive scoliosis and are going to need surgery. And when the curve hits 40, we do some type of non-fusion approach. Um, and, uh, and then there'll always be a few kids that unfortunately kind of slip through the cracks or the family didn't have access to care and they end up with a 70, 80 degree curve, which I don't see a way to treat that without fusion. 
Um, but no, there's a lot of data. We're going to have a lot of data at our fingertips. And my hope is that, um, that the people who own the data will be the patients and maybe the physicians, and that it won't be owned by, as you said, venture capitalists or an implant company, but it can kind of be available for everybody to work with to, to make care better. That's an incredibly inspiring vision. I feel like, I mean, that would represent and a gigantic paradigm shift. If, if that's what happens in 10 years compared to the last 50, this is going to be probably the most exciting decade to be in pediatric spine care. Really, I cool. think it's out there. We just have to work together and make it happen. Really so cool. posing the members, <laughs> fill out your surveys. There's some important surveys coming to you, I hope. Um, and we're going to work together and really focus on the kids and make uh, peds ortho care better for the kids and also better for the doctors, right? Because right now, sometimes we're really forced um, to make choices we shouldn't make. And we're trying to, you know, meet our administrator and our chair's expectations. And we're also trying to take the best care possible of our patients. And, and really, there shouldn't be a conflict there, right? Yeah. We should just be able to take good care of the patients and, and, and um, have that be our focus. Let me get everyone's thoughts on um, if we have any endurance or stamina uh, for the lightning round. Maybe just do two articles that work for you guys. Yeah. All right. All right. First up, a brand new JPO publication out of Turkey called 12 to 20 year follow up of Dega acetabuloplasty in patients with DDH. So. These uh, this cohort has an average of 16 and a half year follow up. Uh, just at normal, healthy babies with DDH getting uh, the a Dega. So, uh, Dr. Larson, after 16 and a half years out of, you know, 100 patients, how many, what percent do you think had uh, some residual dysplasia? What percent do you think had over coverage? I don't know, but I, I just don't have my heart of hearts to do like Pemberton's or Degas anymore in asymptomatic four and five-year-olds. Unless the hip is subluxating, I just like wait till they get pain and then they get a PAO from one of my colleagues. Yeah, it's a, it's a, those are tough conversations. Totally agree. Um, so to if I, if I just sort of round the numbers to make it easy, about a fifth had some residual dysplasia, about a fifth had overcoverage. Um, so about 60% had, uh, very normal looking hips with no problem 16 and a half years after DDH. So, I mean, after Dega, so presumably, you know, for life, they, they had relatively normal hips. So, uh, interesting information, nice long-term follow-up that we don't usually get. Yeah. That's 16 I, years so. is like a drop in the bucket for a baby, right? Like we need 60 year follow-up. Yeah, or at least AI that can predict what it'll look like in 60 years. All right. And last one, the question for Dr. Larson, have you ever used halo pelvic traction? <laughs> no, but my colleague and I some put somebody in um, halo cast this year. Yeah. How, how often, and maybe I'd open this to the other three too. How often are you doing any sort of preoperative traction of any kind? Dr. Larson, we'll start with you. Yeah, you know, four or five, six times a year. It seems like okay. we usually have one child in traction on the peds ortho floor. Sure. What about you, Craig? Yeah, it's about the same. We we 
have one or two generally hanging up at all times here. But they they usually get uh, they get featured um, on the uh, hockey game uh, uh, downtown, and they also get to go down to the music recording studio. So I mean, it's a great it's it's no Texas Scottish right, but but it's getting close. Yeah, sign me up for that traction. That sounds fun. <laughs> well, this is an interesting study. I've never uh, seen this used, um, but halo pelvic traction. So the study out of um, Beijing in JBJS looked at 28 patients who they treated with halo pelvic traction, which um, I would not argue with their results at all. They took these curves preoperatively that were like 140 degree, um, or all of them over 100 degree of, of Cobb angle plus well over 100 degrees of kyphosis and essentially more than half um, both of those, the severe rigid scoliosis as well as the kyphosis with halo pelvic traction and found that they had no uh, major complications and really what they were looking at is the pulmonary function, which everything improved across the board. So the, the volume based on CT imaging of the lungs was improved and pulmonary function based on uh, PFTs was also improved across the board. So um, something again, I haven't seen or used myself, um, but is a very interesting uh, approach to these severe rigid curves, uh, this preoperative halo pelvic traction. So um, if you haven't heard of or seen this, certainly something that we can all look into and maybe maybe uh, broaden our treatment options for these patients. Noel, do you have any um, insight into, I mean, I think you can apply a lot of force through this, but any reason why that didn't catch on as a major treatment and halo gravity did? Um, and my recollection, I think halo pelvic was actually kind of the first, the first stab at halo traction for spine deformities. And then I think Stagnera came up with the halo gravity like a decade or so afterwards. So I, I'm just wondering, is it, is it thought of that that's unsafe in some way? And then this article is notable for that they still applied it or, um, I, I mean, fantastic results. I'm just wondering why we don't hear more about it. I would think it seems more kind to the child to be able to get up and move around and ambulate. I think halo pelvic, are you supine for that or on bed rest? No, they, I mean, it's, it's a ringed fixator around the pelvis essentially with fixation in the front and the back of the pelvis that then connects to similar looking rods that would be like a halo vest um, connection or a halo cast. Uh, or, that connects from the pelvis up to the, the ring around the cranium. So, um, I mean, the, they've got some interesting pictures and uh, description of the procedure, but. Seems like it'd be hard to lay down. Yeah, my suspicion <laughs> didn't, for why it didn't catch on is how do you sleep with a ring around your pelvis? I, I don't understand that. I signed me up for halo gravity. You gotta day. sleep, you gotta sleep on a diving board, I think. <laughs> And those pins, you know, weep, right? I mean, we, we did have a fine patient in Ilazarov and fellowship and those pins weep quite a bit. Yeah, you need to have some thin body habitus, I guess. All right. Well, I'm glad we've all figured that out. Um, so uh, that's that's all we have planned for uh, for this month. Um, Noel, I, I got to say it was great having you and um, wonderful to hear your insights and all these things. I think in particular, not even just the articles, but your 
your thoughts on kind of the future of this field and where enabling technologies are going to take us. Uh, that's really exciting to hear. And um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people interested in peds orthopedics, uh, not just spine, are going to take a lot away from this. So thank you for all those insights. Hey, thank you for the great questions. This was like a, um, a real tour de force. So I appreciate all the variety of questions and <laughs> the opportunity to talk about some of my work and and just good luck to all the researchers out there. I, I think that's one of the things that really um, highlights the peds ortho surgeon, right, is that we want to do research and we're curious and we want to make things better for our patients. And I, I can't help myself. I just want to put a bow on this episode because I think this is just uh, has been really phenomenal and mind opening. But, you know, Dr. Larson, the research we just presented is basically, you know, not only impressive like we do every month where we have great colleagues in the field, but all of these studies we're doing or that you we just went over that you're doing are really just changing, you know, the paradigm and orthopedia, you know, introducing AI, uh, new new techniques for shared decision making with patients, uh, a randomized trial and uh, really impactful ways to change radiation. You know, this is just four in a row, really groundbreaking stuff. So thank you so much for all this work and for taking the time to discuss it with us. Thank you for doing the podcast. It's really, really a great way. This is how people communicate. I think where I'm behind maybe is like the social media field, right? That you guys can teach me about podcasts. And well, Facebook. you know, that that's a great plug for the mid-career surgeon meeting. This is for you, Derek Kelly and Sukin Shah. If you haven't already signed up for IPOS, uh, please come to the please come to IPOS this year. Uh, Dr. Noah Larson will be on faculty as well as many others, and um, there's uh, there's stuff there directed just for people looking to do groundbreaking research or organize their practices better, or um, or learn how to use social media. So uh, please please come to that if you're interested, and the podcast will be there. You can stop in the booth and say hi to us. <laughs> We'll have some uh, some new blood on the podcast too, some new hosts. So uh, get excited! It's a nice teaser. Well, thank you, everyone, uh, for tonight, and um, uh, thanks, Noel. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again. See ya. Thank good you. night, everyone.